God, we do come together as your family, the church, under the banner of Jesus Christ. God, we come in his name who has all authority and power. God, we come and we celebrate King Jesus. God, we look forward to the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God, we cannot wait to stand before you and to worship you forever and ever for all praise and worship is due your name. And so, God, it's amazing just to think about how you are about to speak to us by your word. God, I pray that we would, Lord, just want to receive what you have for us today, that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word, that you would make this plain. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever been in a situation in which you had to be the bearer of bad news to someone else, and you knew that they were not ready to receive it? I'm sure you've been there before, maybe uh, in the workplace, maybe you're a a supervisor or a boss, and you had to let somebody go, and you knew that they weren't ready to to receive the news. Maybe you're a parent, and you had to sit down with one of your children and uh, share something very difficult with them, and you knew they weren't ready to receive it. Or maybe uh, you've been in a relationship before, and you had to go through uh, kind of an ugly breakup and you knew that they weren't going to receive it well, you thought maybe I'll, I'll use the, hey, it's not you, it's me, because that always works so very well. Or maybe you kind of pulled the, uh, the, the God card, hey, God told me to break up with you, you know, which is like the ultimate trump, how do you argue with that? I'm guilty of doing that in my life. But in those situations, <laughs> yeah, there's some dating advice there, don't do that if you're thinking about breaking up. But in those situations, it's always difficult I think, to be direct and yet gracious at the same time because the reaction is so unpredictable, right? People receive uh, news that they weren't expecting, and there's all kinds of different reactions. Well, I think in most cases, you can see the condition of one's heart based on the reaction to news that they weren't expecting. You think about an outburst can reveal anger that might be in someone's heart. You can think about defensiveness, can reveal, can reveal uh, frustration or even bitterness. You can think about a, a poised response, might reveal a heart of kindness. Well, I share that with you this morning because in our passage today, we will find Jesus being the bearer of news to the Jews. And from the Jews' perspective, they interpret this as bad news. Now, what I want us to see this morning is I want, to, I want us to notice the kind of reaction that the Jews have to this news that Jesus gives them, and I want us to notice what their reaction reveals in their own hearts. And we're going to find exactly what these Jews think about Jesus, and we're going to learn about the condition of their own hearts, and then towards the end, we're going to see how that challenges us as we consider responding to Christ and his word. So we're just going to walk through this verse by verse. Here's the first section I want to point out in verses 22 through 24. We see and notice a key question, a key question. Verse 24, this question is first asked, but before we get there, notice verses 22 and 23. John sets the setting in our passage. just want to remind you, even last week, we looked at how Jesus, uh, in the first part of John chapter 10, uses this metaphor of the good shepherd. He used that metaphor, remember, as a contrast between his loving leadership and the harsh treatment of the religious leaders. And towards the end there, in verses 19 through 21, we see yet again another division among the Jews about what to do with this whole Jesus thing. Some are confused, some are believing, some think he's demon-possessed, and that's kind of how that conversation ended. 
When you look at verses 21 and 22, there's about two months that take place in between those two verses. In fact, chapters 7, 8, and 9, and the first half of chapter 10 all revolve around the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, as we've seen, uh, took place around October in the fall. And yet in verse 22, we learn that it's now wintertime. And specifically, it is now the time of the Feast of Dedication. Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, uh, took place around December 25th, late December. And so we are now a couple of months uh, since Jesus uh, last spoke with the Jews recorded by John. Now, the Feast of Dedication was not an authorized uh, festival in the Old Testament. This is a feast that came about in uh, the 160s B.C., because a Syrian decided to uh, take the Greek culture and the Jewish culture and combine them. Uh, and the Syrian took over the Jewish way of living, took over the temple. They did some despicable things in the temple, and it was a very, very dark time for the Jewish people. Now, that lasted uh, only a couple of years, where the Jewish people then revolted, and they recaptured the temple. They consecrated the temple back to God. And so every year... They celebrate the recapturing of the temple at the Feast of Dedication. What they would do for eight days is they would light these candles or these lamps to signify that the lamp and the light in the temple is back on again, and we've got access to worshiping God. Now, I share that with you because I think that's a helpful chronological marker given by John. It's John's way of kind of moving the narrative along. We're two months farther down the line. But it's also helpful to realize that out of all of the feasts, out of all of the festivals that the Jews uh, celebrated, this was by far the most politically charged. That out of all of the feasts, this is the one that they would celebrate almost like the birth of a nation. Okay, so it's, it's with that in mind that we come to verse 24, and we see that the Jews are gathered around Jesus, and they ask him this question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Okay, now remember, the, the tension is building and building and building between Jesus and the religious leaders ever since John chapter 5 with the Sabbath controversy where Jesus healed the invalid of 38 years until finally in this verse, verse 24, they've had enough kind of dancing around this question. They've had enough of Jesus being abstract and vague with all of these metaphors, being the living water, being the, the light, being the good shepherd. They want to know, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Now, this question is not neutral at all. This question is politically charged. And for the Jews at this time, their understanding of the Messiah had political and military connotations and when you take that on top of the Feast of Dedication, where they're celebrating this military and political revolution, they're looking and wondering, is Jesus going to lead a political and military revolution against the Romans? They're wanting that. They're, they're hoping that Jesus would kind of say, yes, he is the Messiah. And so they ask this key question, but they are not prepared for the answer that Jesus gives. We see in verses 25 through 30, Jesus now becomes the bearer of news with a direct answer. They're gathered around Jesus. They're wanting to know so desperately, are you the Messiah who will defeat the Romans? And yet Jesus' direct answer, I think, stuns them here. It's almost like Jack Nicholson is responding 
and says, man, you want to know the truth? You can't handle the truth. Now, Jesus doesn't say that in the text, but it almost feels like he's getting to that point here. That Jesus responds just very bluntly and directly, I've already told you, but you do not believe. They're not handling the truth that Jesus has been sharing all along. And then Jesus explains why they have not believed in verses 25 through 30. And he explains the why by resuming the image of the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice. Jesus declares that the Father has given him the sheep, the true believers, and those that really belong to him hear his voice and respond to him. Jesus says, all of these miracles that I've been performing clearly prove that I'm one with the Father. And yet those who don't recognize that, who don't understand that, who don't believe that, are represented by the sheep who do not hear the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus is clear, he's direct, he's unwavering in his response. But Jesus, I think, is doing something much more than going back to that sheep, she, uh, sheep shepherd metaphor. That's hard to say, and you got to be careful how you say that fast. <laughs> I did have my first cup of coffee this morning in, a, in three months, so I might be a little bit jittery this morning. So maybe this sermon will be 15 minutes, we'll see. Now, I think Jesus is doing something here that is much more uh, deep than just going back to this sheep-shepherd metaphor. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is addressing their general view of the Messiah. And this is not something the Jews like. This is what angers the Jews the most because Jesus, in verses 25 through 30, corrects their view of the Messiah in three specific ways. The first way is that Jesus says, look, I perform miracles, but not the ones you expect. Okay, let me give you one example of that. In John chapter 9, uh, traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath. And we looked at that passage and we said, man, how clear is this miracle that Jesus is God? And yet the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with the miracle. They were only concerned about Jesus breaking the Sabbath law. They say in chapter 9, verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And so Jesus, in verse 25 of our passage, says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Jesus is saying, look, you ask if I'm the Messiah? Well, just as the Messiah is to perform miracles, so I perform miracles, but not the ones you expect or the ones you're willing to accept. That they wanted the Messiah to perform miracles, but not on the Sabbath, because that would subvert their own authority. Secondly, I think Jesus corrects their view of the Messiah by saying, look, I bring deliverance, but not the kind you expect. Now, the popular desire at this time that's growing and growing and growing is to take over the Roman forces. There was a rebellious movement among the Jews called the Zealots, and their whole purpose was to take over the Romans. Now, the zealots at this time, they're looking for a leader. They're looking for someone to kind of lead them and lead the people in this rebellion. And they're wondering, Jesus could possibly be this kind of leader. And yet Jesus doesn't want to deliver them politically or militarily. Jesus wants to deliver them spiritually. Look at verse 28. He says, I give eternal life and they shall never perish. So Jesus says, look, you ask if I'm the Messiah Well, just as the Messiah is to bring deliverance, so I bring deliverance, but not the kind you expect. Now, thirdly, another way that he corrects their view of the Messiah is he says, look, I represent God, but not the way 
you expect. I think the religious leaders had a very important role during this time. One of their key responsibilities was to analyze anybody who had a uh, claim to being a prophet. They did this to protect the people from being misled, but also to kind of protect their own power. And so they're looking at Jesus wondering, wait, we need to inspect this guy because he's claiming to be this prophet. Well, for Jesus, he's claiming to be much more than a prophet. He's claiming to be one with God. That's exactly what he says in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus says, you ask if I'm the Messiah? Well, just as the Messiah is to represent God, so I represent God, but not the way you expect. Now, for the religious leaders, they're, they're posing this question, are you the Messiah? Because they want to know. They think that the, the public is suspecting that he's the Messiah, and it's a reasonable question. It's kind of a yes or no response, and yet Jesus kind of gives them this direct response early on in this, in this conversation, but he also was explaining, I am not what you expect. That Jesus then goes on to explain the heart of the Messiah. He explains the power and the compassion of the Messiah towards the sheep. And in verses 28 and 30, Jesus affirms the eternal security of the sheep. Look with me. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, that no one will snatch them out of my hand, that my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Look, these verses are so, so beautiful and so important if you're a follower of Jesus. That what these verses are telling us is that God is committed to our perseverance until the very end, and he will hold you fast. This reminds me of Jude's concluding benediction in verses 24 and 25, where he says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Like one of our favorite activities as a family when the weather is nice is going on a family walk. Me and Lindsay, we love doing that with our girls. I think our girls love it too because they get to you know, take their delicate small hands and, and put it inside ours, and we kind of hold hands as we walk. And as we walk, from time to time, me and Lindsay will shout, one, two, three, and our grip will tighten. And our girls know, okay, when the grip tightens, they're supposed to lift up their legs, and we lift up their arms, and, and, and they're kind of giggling as they're almost like flying. It's one of our favorite things, because for them, they kind of feel like they're flying, but they're laughing and giggling because they feel safety. They, they feel a sense of mom and dad are not going to let go of their grip on us. I think what Jesus is saying in these verses is that our spiritual safety is not dependent upon our weak and feeble grip upon Christ, but upon his strong grip on us. That he says in verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then furthermore, verse 29, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are doubly safe. That you have Jesus who's holding on to you, and you have the Father who's holding on to him. Look, this is one of the most precious realities that we have in the Christian faith, 
is that God is so committed to your perseverance that he has sealed it with his unfailing word. The reality of our faith is that, look, our faith doesn't save us because our faith is so strong. Our faith saves us because of the strength in the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. Look, you're going to be faithful until the end, not because you were faithful first, but because God is faithful to you. Look, I think that's such a huge difference because, look, yes, we are called to obedience. We're called to obedience until the very end, but it's not completely up to you that you have the almighty, eternal trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is working for your sanctification and your perseverance until the very end. Look, we're called to just trust in the one who keeps us trusting. We're called to trust in the one who goes before us, who goes behind us, who is right next to us, who will see us until the very end. Look, if God has you, no one, nothing will snatch you from his hand. We are his and he is ours. Look, I wonder, in what ways do you need to apply this truth to your heart this morning? I wonder in what ways do you need to remind yourself of the reality of Romans 8 where Paul says that nothing will separate you from the love of God? I wonder if you're battling sin and temptation like I am on a daily occurrence. I wonder if you need to be reminded that nothing, no one will snatch you from the hand of your good shepherd. I wonder if you're going through suffering or trying to persevere. I wonder if you need to be reminded that God's grip will not loosen upon you. I wonder if you're going through fear and anxiety and worry and the burdens of this life. Do you need to be reminded that he will not let go of you, that God will hold you fast? Look, these verses create a warm blanket to our soul because nothing will snatch us from his hand. Jesus explains who the Messiah really is in these verses. Well, this is not the response that they were looking for. Verses 31 through 33, we now see a violent reaction by the Jews here. And verses 31 through 33, they don't like this response, and so they begin to pick up stones in order to kill Jesus. Look here is when we begin to see what is underneath their response. We see the condition of their hearts. Look, just to maybe state the obvious, to go back to the introduction, if you're breaking up with someone or firing someone and they begin to pick up stones, that doesn't automatically make you the Messiah, okay? Just to clarify, right? State the obvious, something else going on there. But here we see the Jews' reaction reveals what is in their hearts all along. That Jesus, noticing that they're picking up stones, then asks them, which one of my miraculous signs are you going to stone me for? Okay, in other words, like all of these signs that I've been doing prove that I'm one with God, that I am God. Which one of those are you going to stone me for? But look at the reaction here. Their response is, look, we're not, we don't care about these signs over here. Our main beef with you is with the blasphemy, according to verse 33. That what they are concerned about is that Jesus claimed to being God. And we've noticed the accumulating charge of blasphemy just builds steadily all throughout John's narrative in the, the religious leader's viewpoint. In John 5, at the heart of the Sabbath controversy, Jesus heals the invalid for 38 years. But their concern in verse 18 of chapter 5 with his claim of being equal with God. And that's why they started to kill Jesus. And then chapter 8, 
Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That was a claim of deity and oneness with God. The result was, in verses 58 and 59, they pick up stones and try to kill him. And then even last week, Jesus' claim of being the good shepherd, expressing this type of unity and oneness with the Father, also made them upset about Jesus. Look, these religious leaders, they're not going to pick up stones and kill someone if they're not trying to claim to being God. And this type of response and reaction, where from our perspective, is a little much. It's like, okay, like, why are you going to pick up stones and kill this guy? Like, he's claiming to be this guy. Just, just kind of move him to the side. He's a little bit crazy, but move on with your life, right? But for a Jew at this time, they held so dearly to Deuteronomy 6.4, which is called the Shema. This is kind of uh, like, like John 3.16 in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, that was like John 3.16. That's what we hold dearly. That was so sacred because the oneness of God separated the Jews from all of the other nations. Okay, this is what they would probably have tattooed all over themselves, even though I think tattoos are against the uh, old, old covenant law. But this is what they held so dearly, that it's oneness about God. And so some other Jew coming along, claiming also to be God, was deemed in their eyes worthy of being stoned and being killed. And so we see this furious reaction among the Jews. Now Jesus responds to this in verses 34 through 39, and we see the brilliance of Jesus and what he does here. And I'm calling this the, the clear, a clear rejection because of mainly verse 39. At verse 39, we see that the, the Jews here, some of the Jews at least, still want to arrest Jesus. Now ultimately, we'll see John's conclusion of the Jewish people and their unbelief of Jesus in a very important verse in chapter 12, verse 37. That in verse 37, it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Okay, that's John's conclusion over the Jewish people. And we're kind of leading up to that. But verse 39 leaves no doubt where some of the religious leaders stand in their unbelief towards Jesus. See, we see the, the condition of their hearts that they're unwilling to believe they're unwilling to bend their knee and worship Jesus because of their own pride and because of their own belief. But look at the, the brilliance of Jesus in verses 34 through 38. And Jesus provides an unanswerable argument as he responds to these accusations of blasphemy by quoting from Psalm 82. Now he quotes from Psalm 82 because he knows that the religious leaders are not going to argue with Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. It's too sacred. But he quotes from Psalm 82 because here is where uh, some of Israel's judges and other leaders and rulers were called uh, gods, little g-gods. And they were called this not to uh, describe them as deity or equal with God, but to indicate that their task and their role were divinely appointed. And so Jesus' argument here is from the lesser to the greater. That he's saying here, if these mere humans, these judges, these leaders were given the title gods, lower, lowercase g, then how much more should I be called God and one with God? And he says that and again points to the miraculous signs. I've been doing all of these works. These works bear witness of my own identity that I am God. 
It's such a tight argument that these Jews can't really argue with him. They're not going to say, no, 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 the Old Testament doesn't say that. That's not true. They believe that, and Jesus is using that against them. This response by Jesus is so clever. It's, it's somewhat of a maneuver because he's trying to, to kind of sidestep this, this stoning because he has another invitation to make in verses 40 through 42. That Jesus avoids this stoning because he's got to call more people to believe in him. Look with me at verses 40 through 42, the path to genuine belief. In these verses, we see that Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he heads back to a place in which he did a lot of his ministry right near the Jordan River. And so the Jerusalem story ends with unbelief, with murderous plans. But ac- across the Jordan, there are a, there's a group of people who actually believe in Jesus. Now I want us to notice, what is the difference here between what happened in Jerusalem and what happened near the Jordan? Read these verses with me. He says, He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And then he came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man Jesus was true, and many believed in him there. Now, here's what I think is going on here. I think in these last couple of verses in John chapter 10, John is describing for us the kind of soil in which true, genuine faith takes root and begins to grow. That John references the place in which John the Baptist ministered, in which he preached, in which he baptized. And I think what the author of John is showing us here is that where John's message was embraced, genuine faith in Jesus flourished. Okay, notice what John points out about John the Baptist's ministry in verse 41. He said, look, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true. Look, in other words, John's ministry, what John's life and his mindset was all about was putting a spotlight on Jesus. It was not about his own fame. It wasn't about his own popularity. It wasn't about being liked. It was an obsession with who Jesus is and calling people to believe in him. That's what he was all about. Even when we were first introduced to John the Baptist, if you remember back in uh, John chapter 1, one of the first things that we hear John saying is, I am not the Christ. I'm just the one that points to Christ, right? And then he says, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John was all about. I think John is trying to show us that is the kind of mindset that is starting to take place in these individuals who were believing in him. Let me remind you of just a a spotlight of John's own ministry in chapter 3. He says, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Notice the humility. Notice the Jesus centrality of John the Baptist's life. Notice the enthrallment that he had, the love that he had for his Savior I think what the author of John is showing us is that this is the kind of soil by which genuine faith grows. 
that having that kind of mindset, the John the Baptist mindset of humility and dependence and this Jesus-saturated life, that's where true faith begins to take root and grow. Compare that to Jerusalem. They rejected John the Baptist's message. They, they rejected that kind of mindset of humility, that religious leaders are not willing to bend their knee. They're a, they are filled with pride and with self-sufficiency. Not in these verses, in verses 40 through 42. These are individuals who hear the shepherd's voice because they are his sheep. I bet if you thought back for a moment at a season of your own life in which you had a lot of sin going on in your life or, or maybe a time in your life in which you had least spiritual growth, I bet you would notice an absence of John the Baptist's mentality of humility. I bet you would notice a mentality of pride. I bet you would notice this blinding mentality of self-sufficiency. I bet you would notice a, a heart that is devoid of desperation for Jesus. And yet I think this passage is, is calling us to take on the same mentality of John the Baptist, who didn't perform any sign, but just pointed people to Jesus because that is what he was all about. Well, these verses, they have shown us that Jesus is the bearer of news. We've seen the Jews' reaction here and, and how that revealed the condition of their own hearts. We've also seen the, the soil by which true faith grows and flourishes. As we close this morning, I just want us to look at two application points that I think this passage is calling us to. Two application points as we close this morning. Here's the first one I think that we can glean from this passage is a warning to beware of developing a tunnel vision of God. Beware of the danger of developing a tunnel vision of God. What I mean by this is just to remind you, these Jewish leaders had developed a tunnel vision uh, of what they thought the Messiah was going to be like. They had a box where this is where the Messiah kind of lives. This is what we can expect the Messiah to be and to do. And yet when Jesus came and did something beyond that box, beyond that vision, they were unwilling to accept it. And as a result, they missed the purpose of God in Jesus. And look, I, I just want to almost warn us this morning that I think that we can have the same tendency as it relates to how we view God and how we even experience the Word of God. Just want to encourage us not to develop a too narrow of a view of God, that when He does something that we don't expect Him to do, to, to be careful of our response and our reaction to that. In other words, when, when God sends something into our lives, or we read something in His Word that's beyond this narrow view of Him, we can respond in an unhealthy and borderline sinful way, very similar to the Jewish leaders. Now, not trying to stone Jesus, but it can lead us into a path of disobedience. Here's a couple ways that you can know that your vision of God is too narrow, a tunnel vision of God. Number one, has your knowledge of God, has it been increasing and growing? Or has your knowledge of God become stagnant? In other words, are, are you learning and growing in your knowledge and understanding of God, consistently being awed by who he is? Or has it been a long time since you've opened up the word and been wowed by the greatness of God? Look, if that's true of you, you might be developing a tunnel vision of God, just the stagnant understanding of him. 
And when he does something beyond that, it might throw you down a path of disobedience. Another way that you can tell you're developing tunnel vision is do you expect God to shield you from suffering? Do you believe that God is predominantly concerned about your happiness and your comfort? Or do you believe that God is predominantly concerned about your holiness, about your growth, and that he'll actually use suffering and hardship in order to grow your dependence upon God? See, if it's, if it's more of the former, that you think God's concerned about your happiness, that might be evidence that you have a tunnel vision of God. Another way that you can tell if you're developing this, if, if you expect God to follow your plan for your life, instead of trusting God open-handedly with your relationships, with your career, with the situation going on in your lives, if you think that God is, needs to kind of follow your, your path and your chart for your life, that might be evidence that you're developing a too narrow vision of who God actually is. Look, I think here's the danger. The danger here. When we try to make God into a type, of, a type of understanding within ourselves that's so narrow and so palatable that we are in danger of missing the purpose that he has for our lives. Just like the Jewish religious leadership, they miss the purpose in Jesus because of their expectations they had for the Messiah, and the same can happen with us. Look, we can miss what God has for us in a particular season because we're not expecting him to do it. Look, you can see that. You can de determine if that's true for you by your response when suffering comes, your response when disappointment comes into your life, your response when you have unanswered questions. All of those reactions can reveal your understanding and your view of God. And to encourage you, if you're wrestling with that, a way to combat a too narrow view of God is to consistently be awed by the greatness of God. It's one of the best ways that you can grow your understanding of the Lord is by approaching his word and just saying, God, show me what you're really like, not what I want you to be, but blow me away with your greatness and your bigness. God, surprise me with your sovereign plan that you have for me, even if it's against my own plan for my own life. Oh, what a difference that mindset would have been for these religious leaders if they approached Jesus that way. And I think that's a warning for us here this morning. Well, the second last application we'll point out this morning from this passage is to cultivate the soil of humility in your own heart. As we just saw in verses 40 through 42, I think humility was the path to genuine belief, having a Jesus-saturated heart. I think this is why some believed. Look, one of the best ways to cultivate humility in our own lives is to consistently flood our hearts with the glory and the beauty of God. Look, this is why the gospel is so important. The gospel not only saves us and redeems us, but the gospel of Jesus matures us and conforms us into the image of Jesus. The reason why that is true is because there is no better way that God displayed his glory and his beauty than on the cross of Calvary. That on the cross of Calvary, we see Jesus, the perfect son of God, who dies in the place of sinners, dies in the place of his own enemies, people who rebelled against him in order to save, redeem, and to forgive them. Think about that. Like that is the display of God's glory. And the more that we remind ourselves of that reality, 
the more that we meditate on that on a daily occurrence, the more that your pride and my pride will start to die away. The more that this dependency upon God, this humility, this desperation for the Lord Jesus will grow, the more that we are worshiping God and reminding ourselves of the power of the gospel. Look, pride, in essence, confuses our identity with God's. It makes us larger than what we actually are. And so I think humility here is correctly understanding ourselves because we understand who God actually is. That when we are caught up in the glory of God, there's no time to be caught up in our own glory. But when we are enamored with God's goodness and beauty, we are no longer enamored with ourselves. And so I just want to close this morning with just a more of a challenge to you, church, as you think about the summer as you know, we're already in the month of June, and maybe you've got more margin this summer. Maybe you don't. It feels like the summer can be more busier than the rest of the year, but just want to give you a summer challenge today as we close. I want you to consider taking the next couple of months and intentionally growing your understanding and your knowledge of God. I want to challenge you to grow just the, your view of who he is, the bigness and the greatness of God, to not settle for just being stagnant in your understanding of who he is, to not have this mindset, yeah, I know who God is, I know what the gospel is, I'm good, but to have this desire, no, no, I want to I learn him more and more for the rest of my life. I want to challenge you with that by, by picking up a book this summer, uh, not just diving into the word of God, but by reading a book that will saturate your heart and your life in the bigness of God, to pick up a book like The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, pick up a book like uh, None Like Him by Jen Wilkin, pick up a book like, called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Those books are so good. It will show you the bigness of God that will attack your own pride and your own self-sufficiency. Look, I think that's our next step from this passage as we look at the warning to not be like the religious leaders, to be like the people near the Jordan River who notice that there's something about this Jesus guy I need to get a hold of and I need to surrender my life to. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, Lord, this time that we've had, this warning that we see in this passage to not be like the religious leaders. God, to not assume that we have it all together. Lord, I pray even as how we view you, oh God, that you would challenge us, that you would grow us. Lord, even if we've been walking with you for decades, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word and other resources, Lord, that you would stun us all over again about how good and loving that you are. God, we need your help to battle our own pride. We need your help to battle our own self-sufficiency, our self-reliance. And Lord, the path to that is humility found in the gospel. So Lord, take this summer, take this challenge, and Lord, bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.